We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast. I often post on forums, and I'd like to personally thank those forum owners for allowing me to post on those forums. In no particular order, they are audiosciencereview.com, audiocircle.com, audioshark.org, audiophilestyle.com, AV Nirvana, which is also the home of Rumi Q Wizard and Audio Lens, DIYaudio.com, gears.com, and Parts Express Forum. Thank you so much and enjoy. Today on the Intellectual People podcast, I have Martin from Dutch and Dutch. How are you doing today, Martin? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. Martin, tell me what Dutch and Dutch is. Dutch and Dutch. What a Dutch. And, well, that's a great question, actually. And it's, um, it's something we've been talking about a lot lately. What is Dutch and Dutch? And there's a lot of ways to look at it. I mean, is it um, a brand? Is it the people? Is it uh, the product is a technology. So this is something we've been talking a lot about lately. Which angle would you be interested in hearing right now? All of it. All of it. I want to know for the listeners hmm. how Martin describes Dutch and Dutch. Is What is it? What makes up Dutch and Dutch? What does Dutch and Dutch sell, if anything? What are we here to talk about? So... I think people who have heard about Dutch and Dutch, they probably be, probably know about the HC. That's the speaker here in the back. Okay. This is our one and only product. It's not a first product, but it currently is the only one we're selling. Yeah. So basically this product is a loudspeaker that's aimed at both professionals and hi-fi enthusiasts. And when I say professionals, I mean mixing and mastering engineers in particular. And what's special about the AC is that it is a loudspeaker. It's a very accurate loudspeaker, but unlike conventional loudspeakers, it goes further than that. It actually takes the room into account. So if you, most other companies make loudspeaker, loudspeaker companies say they make loudspeakers and there's uh, quite a number these days who know how to make an accurate loudspeaker even. So we make an accurate loudspeaker, but we go one step further, and that is we take the room into account because we believe that by far the most, the biggest part of what determines sound quality in the room is the loudspeakers, the room, and the way the speakers interact with the room. So that is the thing that we do, basically. Sure. Martin, did you start in loudspeaker design all your life? Uh, that I started loudspeaker design. Well, um, when I was a kid, I, I so when I was not even ten years old, I was already interested in music. So my peers, they were not interested in music yet, and I enjoyed listening to music. So my musical taste developed quite at a quite early age. And it's kind of funny. I started in hi-fi way earlier than most people as well. So I was probably around eleven, twelve when I started expanding my my, my well, cheap gear basically and, and trying different things and um, then gradually I had a neighbor who was an audiophile and he 
um, well, he basically, he, he, he took me along and he showed me what this hi-fi hobby is, was about. And I got on this traditional tra trajectory of expanding your system, upgrading parts, um, playing around with cable, with amplifiers and other gear. And after a while, I realized that it's actually the speakers that made the biggest impact on the sound. And I had, at some point I had decent speakers and I wanted to further improve the quality of the speakers. And that turned out to be quite expensive at some point. So in the beginning it was cheap. I got stuff for free. And then as you, as you move up, then at some point it starts to become expensive. Right. So I thought, well, what about building my own speakers? Maybe I can learn how to do this, or maybe I can try a kit. And that's what I ultimately did. So I, um, I bought a kit with some very expensive, nice, high quality drivers. And I kind of expected to build this kit and then be done with it and just go back to enjoying music. I kind of expected that, I guess. But what kit did you build? I built a ScanSpeak kit. Okay. So with a very nice uh, 9900 Revelator tweeter and uh, a Kevlar ScanSpeak midwoofer. Very nice drivers. And the system sounded good. It sounded sure. really good. And this is the um, probably the first and last speaker that I actually ever finished and made to look nice. And I sold it after about three months. <laughs> and um, that's how I got started. It was, it was probably in the early 90s. I was I'm 16 years old, maybe something like wow. that. Wow. Yeah. Did you go to college? I did. Yeah. And what's your degree in? Um, well, ultimately, I went to college and I, um, I was there for a very long time. I didn't study much. I built a lot of last speakers in that period. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I did uh, business administration. So that's what I started at. Okay. Um, I didn't really like that. I built a lot of speakers. I didn't study much. And at some points, I also uh, started physics, which I did enjoy a lot. Uh, I did that for a while. And at some point, um, I realized I had to start going for a job because I couldn't continue this forever, this lifestyle. <laughs> and basically what I did then is I um, was the best thing at the time was to, to uh, finish my bachelor's in business administration. And I did a one year master's. Um, and economics and focused on um, strategy and entrepreneurship. Okay. So I do have a bit of a background in physics and I build a lot of speakers. So um, in that sense, I do have kind of an engineering background, but I'm not uh, a trained engineer in that sense. I Understood. Agree. Yeah. What was your first job? First professional uh, job out of school? Yeah, well, that was actually this. So... I went to university for about 10 years. I built a lot of speakers and I started a company with a couple of friends. And we, we, we started a last speaker company. This was a part-time business. And um, yeah, so, so that is, that, I did that for a while. And um, in the end, that didn't work out. I think one of the reasons was that it was part-time, so it didn't have our full focus. And um, well, we, we had a bit of bad luck. So we gave all our money to this party. We thought it was a good idea to take our money and he was gonna do a lot of things for us. And a couple of weeks later, he went bankrupt and we lost all our money. Wow. And uh, that's basically when the Dutch and Dutch opportunity came along for me. Who makes up Dutch and Dutch? How many partners are there? We started Dutch and Dutch with five people. 
Okay. And um, we have a couple of people working for us. So one of our founders left and um, about one or two years ago, somebody else joined and we have a couple of people on the team who work for us. And are any of the founders, the leading engineers, designers involved in the 8C? The 8C is kind of my brainchild. Um, so this other company I told you about was called Synergy Acoustics. I did it with two friends from university. And our intention at the time was to make a hi-fi. It's kind of similar to what we're doing currently with Dutch and Dutch. So let me take you back to the period. We, we were all involved with speaker design and uh, we were, what can I say about this period? It was a fun period. So basically we met on an internet forum and uh, we all studied at the same university. And so we met up and we saw this opportunity to make way better speakers. And we also already realized that it was the inter interaction with the room that was what was the most important aspect of it. So okay. we had a we designed a speaker that was sort of similar to the HC in some ways. It also had a, a waveguide and a cardioid midrange, which at the time wasn't as good as the one in the HC. But that's what we uh, were doing, and we uh, we had a multi sub approach. And um, like I said, we gave our money to this partner who's going to make the tooling for us and all, all sorts of stuff. But this, in the end, didn't work out because they went bankrupt. Right. Then we started Dutch and Dutch, and it started in a very funny way. So in the beginning, we didn't really know what to do. I was kind of approached by them because they had all these skill sets, and they knew that they wanted to do something in audio. And they had some idea of where they wanted to go, but not really. And they needed somebody who also knew about speaker design and uh, had some business acumen, basically. Okay. And we did, this was in early 2014. And um, so we have somebody on the team who is, well, a couple of guys who know a lot about, about IT software, um, somebody who knows a lot about low level electronics and DSP programming. Uh, we have an industrial designer, so we have all sorts of skill sets were already available, but we didn't really have a business that we wanted to, like a clear idea or a vision where we wanted to take it. So we first did some R&D work for other companies. Um, and then at some point we decided we wanted to, we thought it was a good idea to enter the pro audio market because I had already developed some technology uh, previously to uh, make directional speakers. Uh, the the rest of the team, two or three of them, had already experimented with DSP and noise cancelling to make quiet zones, basically. And we thought, well, we can put this all together and add um, an IT layer on top of it, have all speakers communicate with each other and do some algorithms. And we could presumably make quiet zones uh, within rooms or reduce noise pollution in pro audio settings. So you have a say uh, a beach club or a uh, a club whatever and uh, reduce noise pollution to the neighbors and um so we set out to do something along those lines um i was involved again with the, the speaker design and but but it's absolutely it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a team effort like i said there's lots of different disciplines that are involved and i'm the basically i'm the speaker designer guy at least in the beginning okay 
Now, you mentioned that you and your partners met on an audio forum. Do you mind sharing which audio forum? Well, that was in uh, the, the previous company that I was in. Okay. And that was primarily on a Dutch audio forum. Understood. How many speakers would you say that you built over the years before the 8C and before even the prototypes that came about before the 8C? Well, like I said, I never finished a speaker again. So I built the first kit, but then after that, I experimented with a lot of speakers, a lot of different, but they never really escaped the prototype phase. So as soon as I'd learned the lessons I wanted to learn, um, I lost my interest in it and I tried something new. So this was a very fun period actually, because I wasn't the only one doing it. The, the other guys in the other company were doing something similar. And uh, well, you're on forums, I believe, right? Absolutely. So you know how this, you know how this goes. So sure. you have a couple of other guys who are figuring out some, some other stuff and you share online and you, and you meet up with them and they try something to impress you. And you're like, wow, that's a clever idea. But maybe I can do better. So we, we try to, one up each other, you know? So it was cooperative, cooperative but it was also, yeah. So competitive. Com- yeah, it was also competitive in some sense. Sure. And this was a very fun period, but we were basically just trying out new things and uh, trying to see how far we could take certain design aspects. What design tools did you have before the 8C? Did you have um, what's known as CAD? computer-aided design, uh, FEA, finite element analysis. Did you have any of those types of software tools? Nope. So you had a microphone and maybe Rumi Cube Wizard? We had a microphone. We had, um, yeah, that, I think that's, that's basically what we had. So we had measuring software. We had a microphone. We had, well, that, that's about it, actually. <laughs> well... Uh, what I'm getting at, Martin, is that I want to talk about how Dutch and Dutch has evolved, right, with technology in terms of how you measure your 8C and how you got to the point today when Aaron's Audio Corner does a mm. full measurement suite on a Clipple NFS system, which stands for Near Field Scanner for those listening that the the speaker is undeniably objectively excellent there's no doubt about that would you agree yes i would agree okay that does not happen by luck it just doesn't and we know that right so there has to be some sort of knowledge that was gained previously to the 8c and to gain that knowledge from measurement software and a single microphone. Granted, you can certainly do quasi measurements just as Aaron was doing previously before the Mm. purchase of the NFS system. So that's what I want to get into is how did you quantify what you learned? Yeah. So this is, it's been a process. So like we, like I said earlier, is that I, build lots of different kinds of speakers. So I played around with waveguides, horns, uh, traditional three-way speakers, playing around with reducing edge diffraction, um, dipoles. I love dipoles and designing them. And um, there's a lot of practice there and experimenting with stuff, but there's also a lot of reading online and reading papers. Uh, There's 
books out there of uh, great people. So I think in your first podcast, you had uh, Earl Geddes. Well, he Correct. was uh, a big source of inspiration for me. Uh, okay. He was on the DIY audio forums and I was there and I learned a lot from him. And there mm -hmm. were lots of other people as well. And I read papers going back to the, to the 60s and 70s from people who just knew a lot about speaker design. So this, there's this phrase I really like, it's uh, standing on shoulders of giants. And I really feel like that is, that's the only way we could have designed DHC. That's the only way, because there's so many great people who came before who did excellent work and research stuff. And um, well, Dutch and Dutch and, and my personal approach is very science oriented. So I think that engineering is basically the application of science on a design process and a manufacturing process. And we believe in science and um, a rational approach. So we look at the people who came before us and who came up with, with science on, on, on this, in, in this field. So speaker design, acoustics, psychoacoustics, and there's just some things that you learn from that. Basically, what, what do you want in a good in a speaker? It's not that difficult these days. I mean, back in the, in the 70s, people were just trying different things, but I can just buy a book, read the book, and now I know that what I need is a flat, smooth, on-axis frequency response. I need an extended base. I need even dispersion. And um, once you have that, you don't want rattles and excessive distortion and stuff like that, noise. Uh, what's the next step? Well, you're going to put the speaker into a room, right? So how do you want it to interact with the room? Well, there's lots of ways you don't want it to interact with the room. So you, you, there's a certain level of, of reflections that are uh, potentially beneficial, but you don't want excessive re uh, reflections. And um, there's a lot of lot of research out there that you can, can read. And based on that research, you can, can define your targets. Would you say that all of those experiments prior to the 8C actually helped you develop the 8C because they were really individually teaching you one specific or maybe even a few different things specifically about what your goal was to learn about it? Yeah, I think so. I do think so. So I told you about this sort of competitive and cooperative phase with, with, with uh, among others, those two friends with whom I um, started Synergy Acoustics, the company I had before, Dutch and Dutch. And basically what we did is we, we learned uh, primarily in theory, that a certain design aspect was very important. And we just play around and try to one-up each other and, and trying to improve it further and further and further until the point that it didn't really make any sense anymore. And then we tried and pick something else. And gradually you learn, well, this aspect is actually more important than this, than this other aspect, for instance. What design aspect do you think is most important of all of them? Well, it's very difficult to... to I think the number one would be simply frequency response. It's, it's okay. it, it never ceases to amaze me how big the impact of a change in frequency response can be. So a lot of things that we attribute to other factors are actually frequency response. You mentioned that you have a love for dipoles. Is it by coincidence or on no. purpose that an 8C has a characteristic of being a dipole. Mm, no, it, it kind of evolved. 
So before, when I started experimenting with cardioids, I built dipoles and I love dipoles. And that was primarily, I think, um, back in the noughties, um, you had Linkwitz, obviously he was very active. He's a, he's a great inspiration as well. And his website is a huge source of information and knowledge. He's a great educator as well. Yep. And um, Kraskowski and uh, a, a lot of other speaker guys who were into dipoles at, at that time. And I experimented with it as well. And after a while, the one thing that, that in the end I didn't like about dipoles yeah, is that they have to be placed far out into the room to work well. So they need at least one meter of space behind them, preferably right. a bit more, because otherwise the, the front wall reflection will, like, it will do all sorts of things that may be pleasant, but they ultimately, I, I didn't like it because it was just too excessive because you send an equal amount of sound towards the wall as you're directing at the listener. So I figured, what. How do we keep the directivity and the, the the things that make dipoles sound so open and pleasant, but enable it to be placed closer to the front boundaries, the front wall? And um, yeah, so, so you have to change the directivity. So a dipole sends sounds toward the front and toward the back. And basically what it does in, at the sides is they, it cancels. So at 90 degrees off axis, it cancels. And what the cardioid does is it takes the cancellation that happens to the sides and it shifts it towards the back. So one of the things that's interesting about a dipole is that you have reduced sidewall reflections, but actually the sidewall reflections aren't that bad. You don't want them, you would, don't want them to be too strong, but some sidewall reflection can actually be beneficial. And the front wall reflection adds a nice kind of um, a particular, it adds a particular effect, which can be pleasant, uh, particularly with acoustic music, but with some other music, it's just too much. And why would you say that the sidewall reflections would be beneficial or could be beneficial? Basically, this goes back to the work of Floyd Toole, and he, um, well, he's obviously referencing other researchers as well, but basically what it does, sidewall reflections, they don't cause in general, that they don't cause much coloration, but they do widen the apparent source width. And that is generally considered to be pleasant. So if you have only two speakers, you have a, and you don't have any reflections, then you have a very narrow, uh, narrow sound stage. And what sidewall reflections can do is they can expand the width of the, the, the sound stage. And that is generally considered to be pleasant and it's even considered to be more realistic because it kind of circumvents some of the limitations of stereo. And would you agree then, Martin, that over damping a room with too much acoustical treatment, you can actually mitigate that benefit of sidewall reflections? Yes, you can. That's true. You can. Okay. So in general, I think, and Floyd Tool, Floyd Tool's school of speaker design and maybe even room design would say um, leave those side walls reflective mostly um, to get that apparent sort with. But I do see that it can have some benefits to have no or very little side wall reflections or even a bit deader sound. And it's very, this is a thing where it's not a clear case that 
more debt is less good or more life is less good. So it's it's also a personal preference here. So and what you've um, adapted to, to or what you've learned to appreciate. So um, I've had a time when I preferred more cycle reflections and at other times I kind of adjust and I prefer to have a more dead environment. So I think there's there's room for both actually. Understood. How many prototypes did you build for the 8C? Lots. So I think I, um, or I should probably say we develop lots and lots of waveguides. Uh, so we did have a CNC router at the, at the time and a 3D printer, which were very, very helpful. Sure. That's how, that's what enabled us to, to do lots of iterations and gradually improve the waveguide. And when it comes to the cardioid, that was a very, very long process. So I figured out quite quickly that if you just had a dipole and you put a box around it and made some holes in the sides and maybe the back as well, put some damping material in it and you measure it, you have something that to some extent might approximate a cardioid. But to optimize it, that's something else. So it, was, it took so much time. And it wasn't just, in the beginning, it was just trial and error. So playing around with the material you put in, the, the, um, the dimensions of the box, and maybe the internal um, shape. Yep. But after a while, I figured this is not a way to engineer a product. I wanted to, long story short, what I, at some point, I just had this eureka moment, and I thought, well, what if we approach it like this? And now basically, if you give me a driver any size and you say, make it a cardioid, I can, in a couple of days, I can give you a box and say, here's your cardioid and it will work. Like hmm. you get a deep null at the back instead of maybe get eight decibels of rejection in the back or maybe 10 or 12 if you're lucky. Now you can get 15 plus over a wide range. So it's, uh, I think, but it took a long time to figure that out. How did you design your waveguide? Was it mathematical like Earl Geddes did? Or do you have modern tools to do so? No, it was um, educated guesses. That's where we started. Because you know you had, had an idea of how wide you wanted it to be. And then you start playing around with um, uh, the, the way the, the tweeter connects to the waveguide. Because that's, the, the throat is very important. Mm -hmm. So you have the tweeter. and what you kind of want for a uh, with this kind of waveguide is for the dome tweeter to be a pulsating sphere, which it is not, but it approximates the sphere, and you want it to diffract as gradually as possible into for the, the spherical wavefront to expand without any disturbances. And it's having a model in your mind and making some drawings and then playing around and tinkering with it. That's the way we developed the, the waveguide, basically. That really is how you did it. Yeah. That's how you, we moving forward, would you do it the same way or would you prefer to use mm. modern tools? Maybe a little bit of both. Okay. I do think that in the end, if you have, um, particularly the way the, 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 the tweeter connects to the waveguide, I think that is not entirely understood. So you do have to make prototypes, but I do think that we uh, could probably get away with way less way fewer prototypes than we did when we developed the WaveGuide 48C. Are you in the 
dozens of iterations of waveguides in the prototype phase or maybe under a dozen? No, dozens, definitely. Dozens, okay. Yeah. And it's, sometimes it's, it's just small changes. So you you take the CNC router, you make the waveguide, you put it in, a, you, you measure it, and you and you make educated guesses of where you have to make some, some changes and you can even plaster it or sand it. So it's um, particularly in the beginning were big steps but the last doesn't say they were all very, very minor changes to the waveguide itself. Okay. I'd like to get into the actual hardware of the 8C. So the front baffle material, what is the material of the front baffle? I'm not sure. It's a plastic, but it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's a damped plastic. Is it injection molded as one yeah. piece? It yeah, is. Injection molded. Okay. That gives us the, the best precision. Absolutely. Totally understand that. Mm -hmm. In terms of amplification in your 8C, what, mm -hmm. what have you chosen? Uh, we're using Pascal amps. Any particular reason why? Over the uh, other available Class D amplifiers? Um, so we did. Um, so we wanted a good amplifier. That, that's a sure. great sounding amplifier. So sure. we tried several and the the Pascal was, it sounded very good. That was very important to us. And it was also easy to use. Okay. In the sense that it's all on one board and it's relatively easily connected to, to, to different parts. Yep. So that was important to us. And the fact that they have, um, it's, it's a reliable product. So we knew that it, it they had already sent, um, sorry, um, uh, it already manufactured lots of these amplifiers and they were reliable and that was important to us. Sure. So I think the combination of those three. And your drivers, are they actually designed and built in-house or only designed in-house? We don't design the drivers ourselves. No, okay. these are OEM drivers. So they're um, slightly changed off-the-shelf drivers basically with some okay. uh, changes to our specifications. Is the DSP digital signal processing unit within the 8C designed in-house as well? Yes, it is. We did design the DSP, so the board and the software to program it. How tough a project was that considering the complexity of it? Stupid. <laughs> so, it, so this is one of the things that I think we, sh we should have done differently in the company. We basically wanted to do it all in-house. So we wanted to do the speaker design in-house. Well, we bought the amps. Good God, good God we bought the amps. <laughs> but um, we developed the entire DSP board, uh, programming ourselves. There's a computer board on the 8Cs. We develop all the software that runs on a computer board in-house. So it's, it's a ridiculous amount of work. And I think the idea behind it was not that crazy. We wanted to have control over the, our, our own electronics and, and, and software that runs on it. And I think that's, a, that was a very, very smart idea. Yeah, absolutely. But we definitely underestimated how much work it was going to be. And this is something that, that, uh, yeah, that, that's led to some problems for us. Are you happy that you did it now or do you actually regret doing it well, because that's a funny, that's a funny, sorry that's a funny thing yeah we are happy now that we did it so it was a bad decision at the time but we are happy now that we did it so we've 
develop a lot of software. And I think one of the big mistakes that we've made is we announced features too soon. So I told you earlier that we are we with EHC, we intended to make a very accurate loudspeaker that adapts to the room. And we wanted it to be sort of smartish, you know? So <laughs> streaming audio, an app. And we can't that's that's the kind of the, the idea that we had, and that's the that's the story we told. So we wanted to sell our idea and you do it as you are developing it. Sure. And developing the speaker was a lot of work. Developing the electronics was a lot of work. But we 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 achieved the goals that we set basically. So we did design a speaker that turned out to be very accurate and it does interface with the room in a very favorable way. So we achieved those two, two goals. And then the last thing that we wanted to do is make it smart and easy to use and, 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 and all in one system and with, with an app and streaming, et cetera, et cetera. And we advertised that and that was stupid. That was just stupid because <laughs> we completely underestimated how much work that would be. And this is something that's been uh, a problem a problem for us for, for years actually. So uh, I think maybe two years ago, we announced that the HCs would be room ready quite soon. Um, and we're still not room ready, you know? So, and, and that is not because our team is not able, it's just because we are developing the entire infrastructure, the foundation for the IT and electronics infrastructure ourselves. So for instance, if, a other speaker manufacturer wants to become room ready. They usually have a master slave uh, system. So you yeah. have one speaker which has the, the streamer inside it. And what you do is you stream room to that one speaker. And then that's where you unpack the stream. You have a right and left channel and you just loop it to the other speaker. But we're, what we're doing is we have two master speakers. So they're identical. So what we're doing, for instance, is we're streaming audio to one speaker and to the other speaker. Wow. Now you press play and they start playing the audio, but they each have their own audio clock. So they start at a slightly different moment right. and they consume bits at a slightly different pace. So what we had to do is we had to figure out a way to synchronize the audio, the clocks from those two speakers on the, uh, over the network, over the local network. We figured it out a long time ago, but then there's all these other challenges as well. And the long, long story short, it's an incredible amount of work. I mean, we the we have um, half of the team are IT guys. Wow! And they're developing a product that's been on the market for three years. And I think it's important to point out that you wanted the two masters to sync without a cable between them to yeah. help sync those clocks, right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. The only way they're connected to each other is over the ethernet. Right. Which has its uh, another set of problems which probably could have been helped if it was hardwired between those, mm -hmm. two, right? Mhm. Mm okay. I just want to make sure that people understand that this the simple solution would have been running a wire between the two speakers. Absolutely, that would have been simpler, and maybe we should have done that as a as a temporary solution. It's a solved problem now, so we're uh, basically working on uh, finalizing just some um, relatively minor things. So it can still take some time. I don't know exactly when it will be ready, and I'm not gonna <laughs> commit to any. No, I'm not gonna commit uh, to, to anything because that's. Uh, 
a big mistake that I primarily made. It's primarily my mistake because I wanted to tell people that it would soon be rune ready. So people would get more excited. I oversold it and I've now learned not to do that anymore. Um, but I do think that it is, um, I'm very happy where we are right now. So it's a lot of work to, to make the speakers room ready. But when we, when we talk about room, it's not just room. So it's all the underlying technology that we've developed that was required to do room. But, but now that we have it, we can relatively easily expand because the speakers can synchronize their audio over the network. You can do all sorts of interesting things with that. Wonderful. So I have a few questions regarding scalability. Mm -hmm. All right. The other question I have is multiple subwoofers, which you've mentioned previously. Anytime anybody integrates multiple subwoofers into a system, myself included, it is a very time consuming, somewhat confusing approach for the average person that's never done it before. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So having a system that walks you through a software that walks you through the approach and is not only very accurate in how it performs, but also intuitive, hmm. there's yet to be a system out there that does that. Is that something that Dutch and Dutch as a company is, is, going down that road too? We're not working on that right now. Why is that? Because we're working on other stuff. So we're working on finalizing the, the HC. So we, we set out to, to, to the, the initial promise for the HC was to make a very accurate adapt to the room and this all in one streaming with a, with an app, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Uh, we first want to, um, finish that before we do anything else. The next question on scalability is the basic design of the 8C, is it scalable to a large floor standing monitor? Yes. Okay. Is that something that Martin and company has thought about? Yes. We've, so we, we already have a number of prototypes. We've, we've, uh, we've prototyped bigger speakers and smaller speakers. So we have basically some early prototypes, several prototypes. Have those prototypes, are they working assembled prototypes? Sort of, yeah. Is that something that we as consumers will get to see you think in the next five years? Yes. And will your target market be consumer or pro audio for that? Both. And the, the, the thought process, today, March of 2021, is that it would be the same basic infrastructure as the 8C, correct? With Rune Ready. Right. So when you speak of infrastructure, what do you mean? Um, powered, built-in DSP, Rune Ready. Yeah, so... so uh, electronically sense, yes. yes, so what I said earlier is that we have a big team of developers who are currently still working on the HC, but they're not really working on the HC. They're working on the infrastructure that can be used for different products as well. Okay. Otherwise it would not make any sense. <laughs> no, I understand. Yeah. Do you see a version two or a Mark two, whatever the nomenclature would be of the HC then? I don't know. I don't think so. It's, okay. 
I mean, the interesting thing about the HC is that it, it's um, up, updatable. So one of the things the guys have worked on for a long time is to have a, to develop a reliable system to do remote updates. And that works really well. So we can add features and make changes to the speaker, uh, even change the crossover if, if that's required or things like that. We can, can do all sorts of things um, remotely. So the user would just have to go to the app, see if there are any up updates available, um, read the change log and choose to implement it yet or no. And if they don't like the update for whatever reason, they can roll back to the previous one. So yeah. and you can, can make snapshots, software snapshots, you can roll back to at any time. So there's, that's something we have. What excites Martin about this process more than anything? Mm, that's a good question. I'm a very fortunate man, you know. I I really enjoy what I'm what I do. I enjoy working with audio. I enjoy working with music. I enjoy working with our team. So we have a very capable team of smart people, hardworking people, and we have a vision for the future. And I mean. Of course, there's a, there's a lot of um, stuff that goes wrong all the time, but it's the, that's part of life, you know? And I enjoy overcoming the obstacles and, and growing the business and, and doing what I believe in. So uh, I really love, I love it all, basically. <laughs> What's the most challenging part of the business? We started the company with a bunch of guys who just came out of university. We had some money, we had a lot of energy and ambition, and we wanted to change the world basically. And <laughs> so it was a very startup-y beginning of Dutch and Dutch. Sure. But we didn't, like I said, we didn't really have a product. We didn't have a target audience. And at some point we tried our hand at Pro Audio and for several reasons that failed. And then gradually at some point we decided to go the route we've chosen with the HC. And I think what's been very challenging in the company, and for me personally as well, is that we were with uh, a couple of smart guys who had a lot of energy and wanted to achieve things, but we didn't have a clear vision and we didn't have clear leadership. And that is something that has been challenging for me and for the team. And that has gradually, well, that, that's been, been fixed now. That's uh, a little over a year ago, almost two years ago. Uh, Rolf Dijkstein got involved. He's our managing director and he's helped professionalize the company. So we started with this nice product and people liked it, but we didn't really have a business. So it, so we had to develop the business and become more professional. So I think those things have been challenges that, um, look, those were tough challenges, but I think we've mostly over, we've, we've had We've overcome a couple of very big hurdles, so to speak. Sure. I'm very um, optimistic about where we are right now. I want to talk about Aaron's Audio Corner a little bit because, and I'll link below the review that he did on the 8C because I do believe that it's worth mentioning and talking about. And I'd like to get your perspective as a business owner about it. The first question would be, <clears throat> were you a little apprehensive to send a roughly $10,000 pair of speakers across the water to somebody that had experience in speaker measurement, mm. but not really to that level of loudspeaker to publish for the world to see. 
Um, no, I wasn't really. Uh, and why is I, that? Well, I had spoken with Aaron uh, quite some time before he received the speakers. And him and I, we agreed that at some point in the future, we would send him a pair of speakers. And then several months later, I learned that he actually already had a pair of speakers. So I didn't send them to him. It was one of our retailers who knew Aaron, I think from the, from the car audio world or something like that. So <laughs> he's one of our retailers and he had sent a, a pair of speakers to Aaron. Were you excited to learn that Aaron was buying a Clipple system? I was perplexed. <laughs> and why so? <laughs> because it's incredibly expensive and I wish I had one. And that was actually, that's a great segue. That was my next question. So you just answered it. You don't have one, but you would oh. like one. Oh my God. Yeah. So do you do the measurement of your speakers, how Aaron used to do them then? Quasi anechoic chamber style? Uh, we actually had access to an anechoic chamber. And uh, the early design work on the HC was done primarily in the anechoic chamber. Okay. Um, so at the University of Delft, which is close to where we are. And um, so that was great. Over time, I learned that an anechoic chamber is not totally anechoic. Well, I learned it quite quickly, but it has. Its, I learned that it has its limitations because of that. And the later measurements I did were a combination of quasi-anechoic, so gated measurements, mm -hmm. and ground plane measurements in a big club with a very high ceiling, concrete floor, and walls are very far away. So it's a, it was a very, very time-consuming process to do measurements like that. And the crazy thing is I didn't even have the kind of uh, simulation software, so crossover simulation software that you have these days. So, it, yeah, it's, it, was, it was extremely time consuming because of how we did things. And I would definitely do things more efficiently now because of the tools that are available and yeah, primarily that. How many days do you, if you had a guess, did you spend in the anechoic chamber at university? With the AC? Uh, well, not that many in the end. I think uh, I'd been in the Indico chamber before that because of the other speakers we developed. Okay. For the Pro Audio line, maybe for the AC, six, seven days. Okay. Do you foresee a Clipple system in your future? Well, not this year, but hopefully in the future. In the future. Okay. Do you believe that the data that Aaron was able to produce is a hundred percent accurate? I don't know. I have not really looked into the Clipple Nutri Scanner that much, but it, it it does seem to be very accurate. I do think it's it's very accurate. Well, and I'm not talking about the Clipple system itself. I'm talking about the data of your loudspeaker, the data that Aaron measured the 8C. So Aaron measured an 8C on the Clipple NFS system. Mm -hmm. That data that it produced and the data that he put out, does it match your anechoic chamber within reason of error where you think that's acceptable? Yes, I do. So it's good representation of yeah, the design of the 8C. Yeah, I mean... Every uh, different measurement method ha uh, result uh, leads to some di some slightly different results. So uh, you have to change only a small thing in the, in the way you do the measurements, and you get a slightly different result. So yes, but the the Martin, we what 
in the ideal world, you can measure it anechoically in five different, you could do a round robin, right? You could measure it in five different anechoic chambers around the world, measure it on three different Klippel systems. And in the end, they should all match within an error that is to the standard, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his data should match within that standard of error, correct? Compared to what you have done. I presume so, yes. Okay. Yeah, so in, in that sense, yes. I wasn't surprised with the results. So there, um, my eyes immediately drawn to things uh, that are slightly less than perfect. These are minor things, I, I think. Um, and it makes me think, can I fix that? So, okay. and this, this might be uh, a result of measurements as well. So, I, I, yeah. But generally, I think the measurements shown um, in Aaron's report are very good. And they, overall, they correspond to my results, my measurement results. Great. Uh, and I think the NFS gives um, a better result than um, a measurement in the very big anechoic chamber that um that i that i do normally and the best measurement results i've achieved myself are a combination of the ground plane measurements i told you about and the uh, the gated measurements interesting and they have to be spliced together so there's some some uh, a chance of error there sure so i think the nfs it, it's a it's a very nice system and uh, I've, I've spoken with Aaron on a couple of occasions and he seems to really know what he's doing. So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Why the name Dutch and Dutch? Ah, we uh, considered many different names. And in the end, we thought we are a, um, uh, it's, we were, the idea was to, to have Dutch design and to manufacture in, in the Netherlands as, to the extent possible. So that's what we do actually. So the cabinets are made in the Netherlands. The electronic boards are manufactured for us in Rotterdam. So where we are located ourselves. And we think that it's nice to do things locally as much as possible. Do you assemble them in-house then? All the, the final parts? assembly, yes. You so do. The parts are manufactured for us and we do final assembly, quality testing, packaging, stuff like that. Every pair, or I should say every loudspeaker is tested? Yes, every single speaker is tested and calibrated against a factory reference. And how do you do that? Gated measurements. So it's only above a couple of hundred hertz. Okay. Do you have any sort of burn-in process, if you will, or leave them powered on for a certain amount of time or put a certain sine wave through them for a certain amount of time? We do test with sine waves. Okay. Uh, um, and so they, they're turned off and on several times throughout the production process and the QC process. And um, then they're measured in the final stage. Is there a lead time currently for your speakers? Yes, there is. What is the lead time? I'm not sure exactly what it is right now, but demand has been quite high lately. So I think right now it's about seven or eight weeks. So it's, usually it's a bit less than that. We try to keep it uh, restricted to about four weeks. But okay. right now it's, uh, it's a bit higher than usual. And why do you think that is other than people are buying them? <laughs> it's difficult to say why that is because um, it's very difficult to say because we are a young company and we, the first years, sort of first two years sales went up 
And then COVID hit and we experienced a bit of a shock, but then in the summer, things went back to sort of normal. And right now we're very, very busy for the last couple of months. So it's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a very good problem to have. (laughs) So where we've touched on it a little bit, but where does Dutch and Dutch go from here? What, what can consumers look forward to coming out or features that you've already mentioned about being rune ready? What can you mention about that stuff without overselling? Yeah, so I'm not going to um, share any features that we're working on. Sure. It's smart not to disclose any of that. Absolutely. But I can tell you sort of the vision we have for the next couple of years. That would be there great. Are, there are a couple of things we've invested on and uh, in and that we really believe in. Firstly, ac- uh, accurate speakers. We believe in accuracy. And that means the things we discussed earlier, flat response, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the second thing is the way it integrates with the room. That is something that we're, we will continue doing. So the speakers that we release, you can expect that they will integrate with the room in a favorable manner. Um, the software idea that you mentioned is something that we've been talking about. We're not working on it right now, but it is something that we've talked about. This is something that we might do in the future, and we have some other ideas along the same lines. Okay. We also believe in audio over IP. So we've invested heavily in audio over IP. We developed our own technology and there's lots of things we can do with that. So for instance, the software um, idea that you mentioned, you, you could envision a subwoofer that is connected to the ethernet and you can stream the audio to the speakers. Can you have a wireless ETC? We're not currently working on wireless, no. Uh, it has, obviously it, it, it's convenient, but it also has some down, downsides to work with uh, Wi-Fi. Right. And uh, wired is just more reliable. One of the things that I really like about the HC is that it, and people, basically everybody who listens to it will, will tell you that it sounds really, really good. So it's a really a pleasure to listen to it. And it sounds good, not only in, great rooms, but especially it sounds good in, in average rooms and it sounds good in smaller rooms and larger rooms. So people really enjoy listening to the ACs and there are no obvious flaws. And I think that is very important to, if you want to enjoy music. So sure. my personal opinion is that you want to minimize the number of cues that distract, that annoy. So you don't want resonances, for instance, but there's a lot of other things that you want to keep to a minimum. But once you have that, what can you do to improve the sound even more? So we're working on on some things to go beyond what you're used to from a stereo system. Hmm. I can't really say anything more, but this is also something that we're looking into. Can you give a? I don't. I'm not asking for a time frame, hmm. but I'm going to ask: Can you give a rough idea of when consumers could? expect maybe to see something is this is is your roadmap for those features two years down the road or within the next year which features are we talking about um the the last one of improving the sound Mm, probably not this year okay so this year um we do expect to release one or two new features that i think our users are going to really love. 
but not this one. Okay. Will Rune Ready hit this year, do you believe? I'm very anxious to commit to anything, but... You're hopeful. I'm hopeful. Okay. Do you believe that Rune Ready is important to Dutch and Dutch? To Dutch and Dutch, to the company. It's very important to the company. Yeah. Because like I said, we started working on it a long time ago. We announced it not too long after we started working on it. And that was a big mistake That's that keeps haunting us, basically. So when the HCs are officially room ready and we've released it and customers are using it and they're happy with it, that means that we've kind of finally, well, we, we finally offer the, 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 all the, You've, you've achieved the milestone that you Yeah, promised. it's a big milestone. And we've achieved what we initially wanted to, uh, we actually, the, the promise we initially made. So the right. active, adaptive, and now it's finally with the app and the, the streaming, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, is huge for the company and it's going to, for the team as well. So we've been working on this for such a long time and we've, uh, there's, we, we get emails and phone calls every day. When is it going to be room ready? And everybody in the, in the team feels it. And we know it's coming and people are, are gradually, they, people become more and more skeptical. Right. So this is, this is going to be huge for the company, yes. Right. Probably more for us than, than for the customers who've been waiting for a long time as well, obviously. Right. Will Dutch and Dutch ever design and produce a passive loudspeaker? Never say never, but I I believe in the benefits of DSP based and um, and active. Never say never. So it, it maybe in the future, but I don't see any reason why at this moment. Well, I'll play devil's advocate here. Somebody has a pair of eight C's, however, they don't have ten thousand dollars. So now they have eight, whatever you want to call it. 8P, let's call it, right? For 8P for passive. But it's the same basic design, but they're they're able to use their simple receiver or components that they already own and still get the Dutch and Dutch signature, if you will. Mm. And it costs a third, for instance, right? And you get Dutch and Dutch out there even more so in the marketplace and you also provide somebody the Dutch and Dutch love, if you will, and a path to advance their listening pleasure. So they start with an 8P and in two or three years they go, I finally can afford 8Cs. They buy 8Cs. Now Dutch and Dutch has moved up to a floor stander, right? That's called the 15 because it's going to be a 15 inch, of course. It's going to be the 15C. And now, five years later, they trade in their 8Cs for their 15C, right? Mm. So now you've had a customer from very basic entry level product to now the flagship product. And you've had that customer now for 10 years, right? Which is really important. So that's why I ask. Yeah, I haven't really thought about it like that. Or the 8P can be purchased from today, let's say, Mm -hmm. run passive with what they currently own. But there's a caveat. And that caveat is that Dutch & Dutch offers the Pascal Amps and the DSP in all of the 
hardware that's required in an outboard box. Mm. So then they can buy that and turn, use that. So now they have basically an 8C with outboard electronics because you already have everything. It's a matter of putting it into an enclosure, which unfortunately can get costly as well. Mm. But there's a there is a path forward for a consumer. Yeah, well, it's an interesting idea. We haven't really given it any consideration. Well, I'm so glad it's an interesting idea. Okay, I, I think without interjecting my personal opinion, passive and active speakers are a very contentious subject of what is preferred or what is better, right? By the consumer. Mm not designers, but mainly by the consumers, hmm. I, I believe. Do you not? Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think that passive speakers are still the norm. Right. So in that sense, I, I do agree with you. And there's a stigma against Class D still. Sure. While it's less, it's still there, right? Hmm. So, and I understand from a business side of saying, this is how we do it. This is why we do it. And ultimately this is what we're going to do. Mm. However, isn't it important to consumers to decide on their own and as a manufacturer and businessman to still be able to sell product to the masses? Mm. So are you saying that perhaps we should offer a passive speaker well, while I love the concept of a one box system, so is there anything else other than that that you want to ask or let everybody know? Uh, nothing in particular. No, no. Okay. Conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Martin. And for everybody, please go to dutchdutch.com. And check out the eight C's. And I'm sure if you have any questions, your local distributor, dealer, or if you really want to bother Martin, he'll be happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.